Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we're back in our study in the book of Mark, where we see how Jesus' teachings turned the perception of the kingdom of God upside down. Well, good morning. Man, it never, ever gets old seeing people follow Christ in baptism, does it? I mean, can we thank God for that one more time this morning? Well, listen, Calvary family, I am excited to be with you today. I'm excited about what God is doing in our church and what he is going to do this year as we continue to walk faithfully with him. You know, before we jump into our scripture reading today and our, and our message, there's a couple of very important things that I want to share with you that I'm personally excited about that I hope you're going to be excited about as we embark on this new year together. You know, every year, uh, we take time to uh, plan to receive our global missions offering that we collect all throughout the year, but we really emphasize in the month of December uh, because part of Calvary's long, rich history has been given to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which is usually taken by most Baptist churches in uh, the month of December. And so we've typically done that. Uh, We budget a significant amount of money every year to go to the nations, uh, but we wanna give over and above that. And so this year we set a goal of a million dollars for our fiscal year, which starts in August and and ends in this coming July. And I am so pleased to tell you that we are already at over $947,000 towards our global missions offer. I am so thankful for your generosity. I'm so thankful for the heart that you have to see the gospel go to the very ends of the earth. And I'm thankful for the way that you give, and I'm thankful for the sacrifice you make. Now, here's what I know. I know that some of you have yet to have an opportunity to give to that. And so I wanna encourage you in the coming days to take some time to pray about that for your, with your family. And perhaps there's someone here who just say, you know what, I wanna write a check for $53,000 to get us to that goal. And I would be more than happy uh, for you to do that and for us to get to our goal and beyond as we give every dime away to our missions partners with the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, and Partners in Church Planning. So I'm thrilled to give you that update today. But there's another thing that gives me... Uh, Uh, great pause, not pause, but great pause for excitement. Um, And that is, you know, one of the things I love hearing from you is how much you love and appreciate the staff that God has brought to Calvary. And this morning, I have the joy of sharing with you an addition to our staff team that I am really excited about. We have been planning and praying for some time now that God would bring to us and give us a way to hire a woman's discipleship director uh, to serve the women of Calvary. And I'm pleased to share this morning that Annie Brown has accepted this role and has begun serving this week. Many of you know Annie and her husband, Jay. They have been intimately involved in the life of Calvary for many years. You often see Annie up here leading in worship. She's been a part of our student choir ministry that Calvary's had a long legacy of. She has a counseling background. And above all of that, she's been intimately involved in our women's discipleship initiative over the last few years. And so we're excited that she will now be able to give more dedicated leadership across our campuses to our women's Bible studies, to our events, to mentoring initiatives that we have. And so I believe, uh, I don't see, oh, there she is. I believe Annie's over here to my right. I'm gonna ask Annie to stand and I want you to welcome her to our Calvary staff this morning. 
You know, we say this often, we believe our staff is an answer to prayers. Annie is an answer to our prayer, and we're excited about what God is going to do through her and through the women of our church. And so I want to encourage you to be praying for her, encourage her, write her a note, tell her you're thinking of her and praying for her as she begins this new role on our staff team. Well, listen, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark's gospel, and we are going to be in the 11th chapter this morning. You you may remember that for much of last fall, we were in a study of the first 10 chapters of Mark, a study where we paused and we looked very specifically at Jesus's teaching, his miracles, and in an effort to help us more fully understand who Jesus really is. Well, starting today and all the way through Easter, we're gonna turn our attention now to the rest of Mark's gospel, where it becomes crystal clear, not just who Jesus is, but it becomes clear for us what Jesus came to do. You see, at the beginning of Mark chapter 11, you see a significant transition takes place. We see Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. And so when you look at Mark 11 through Mark 16, you realize that these chapters all reflect a relatively short period of time. And at the end of the chapter, what we see this morning is that we see this growing tension that exists between Jesus and the religious leaders who have now are full on, full on set their minds and their hearts to destroy him. And so I want us to look together at Mark 11, verse 27. We're gonna read through the end of the chapter and then we're gonna read the first 12 verses of chapter 12. The scripture says, and they came again to Jerusalem. And he, as he was walking in the temple, let me push pause there. Matthew's gospel reminds us that he's walking and teaching in the temple. So he's walking, he's teaching there. It says, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse chapter 12, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent his servant to the tenants to get from them some fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they, him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son, and finally sent him to them saying, well, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we often do at this moment, after the reading of the word of God, we remind ourselves and proclaim to one another that this word is truth. It contains no errors, and it is for our good to reveal to us who you are, to reveal to us your work in all of redemptive history. And Father God, I pray now, as we often do, that we would have soft hearts and open minds to hear the word of the Lord to hear your revelation of yourself to us and how we might live and align our lives with you. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And Father, I pray for our campuses this morning. I pray for Pastor Ryan and Pastor Samuel as they teach, for our West Campus, for Pastor Tugay as he teaches our Karini congregation. And Father, for our church planners that we partner with, both here in the United States and around the world, God, I think of Jeremy Woods and Jonathan Linker and Peter Park and, God, others, Tanner Hogue, um, Philip Smith, God, Jeremy Dager. Father, these men that you've placed in positions to lead, God, I pray that you would do a great work through them this morning, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, church family, as I shared with you, when you come to chapter 11 at the end of it, you see that there is this massive tension that is building between Jesus and the religious leaders, and that becomes really, really obvious to us. And at the core of their tension, when you really stop and you peel things back, at the core of their tension, you realize that there is a question. It's a question that they're asking, and in reality, it's a question that all of us in some way are asking, and it is a question of authority. It's a question of authority. You see it there in verse 28. They wanna know, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, I know that we might ask that question a little bit differently, but at the core, it's the same. Every one of us here all the time is asking ultimately, who has ultimate authority in my life? Is it me? Do I have the ultimate authority over my life to do as I please, or is it someone else, or is it God? We realize that that is a universal question, and as I was preparing this message this week and thinking about this and praying for our time together, I thought to myself, what could be a more important question for us to ask on January the 7th, 2024, as we embark on this year for all of us than the question of who is the ultimate authority in my life? Who's the ultimate authority in my life? Because how we answer that question shapes the way that I approach my life. It shapes every decision I make. It shapes every relationship I pursue. It shapes every facet of who I am. It is so ultimately important. And so this morning, if you're taking notes, I wanna follow a real simple outline as we walk through the text together, I want us to see, first of all, Jesus' claims of authority. I want us to then see our conflict with his authority. And then finally, I want us to see our response to his authority. Jesus' claims of authority, our conflict with his authority, and then our response to his authority. So first, Jesus' claim 
of authority. You know, when you read this text, and I know it's always a little bit dangerous when we just jump into a passage and we haven't really read what's coming before it, but we realize you might be asking yourself, well, what's really spurring this question of the religious leaders? The answer to that has been found in everything we've been studying up to this point in Mark's gospel, because we realize that it doesn't come out of thin air for them. This is a question, the question of authority is the question we ask, hear me, when our authority is questioned. When our authority is questioned, we then raise this larger question, which is exactly what's been happening to these religious leaders. And it's been happening for a while now. If you were with us for our fall study, you'll remember that from the very first verse of Mark chapter one, Mark leaves no doubt for us who Jesus is. The whole book begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I've shared with you on numerous occasions that when Mark uses the language, Jesus, Jesus Christ, he's not naming him. He's making a declaration of who he is. He's saying Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the Messiah who was foretold of by the prophets. He's saying to us in no uncertain terms and without a lack of clarity, he's saying to us, listen, Jesus is the king. And as we looked through these first 10 chapters in particular, we've seen his authority on display for us. He's shown us his authority over the spiritual world as he on multiple occasions casts out demons. We've seen his authority over the physical world as he calms the storms and he heals the sick. He tells the lame to get up and walk. And we even stopped and paused and watched as Jesus raised Jairus' daughter up from the dead. And further still, when Jesus engages with people, he tells them, listen, not only do I have the authority over the spiritual world and casting out demons and over the physical world to bring healing and calm storms, I actually have the authority to forgive sins. He has authority to forgive sins, which is a claim that only God could make, and they knew that. It was like, only God has the ability to forgive sins, and that's exactly what Jesus claims to do, and that's exactly what he's saying of himself. He's like, listen, your sins are ultimately against me, and I have the authority to forgive them. And then further still, even as he goes about teaching in various places, the people are realizing that Jesus spoke with a different type of authority. In the very first chapter, and when Jesus is in the temple, we come to verse 22, and it says, and they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And then later in verse 27, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands the unclean spirits and they obey him. So they watched all these things transpiring. And then further still on top of that, you remember his baptism. And then in chapter nine, at the beginning of chapter nine, you see the transfiguration take place. And in both of those events, at his baptism and at the transfiguration, we hear the voice of God the Father from heaven saying of his son, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then not much time before this, these religious leaders here at the end of Mark 11 have just watched as Jesus 
rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, and the flocks of crowds around him, praising him for who he is, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna, in the highest for years now. Through both what he said and what he did, Jesus has been putting his authority on display. And these claims were a threat to the religious leaders. They were a threat to them. And here's the thing. Listen, and if we're honest, if we're intellectually honest, these claims are a threat to us too. They're a threat to us too. You see, we've acknowledged Jesus' claims of authority, and that gives rise to their conflict with his authority and our conflict with with his authority. You see, understanding who these religious leaders really were will help us understand why they saw Jesus as such a threat. I mean, when you stop and think about it, their entire kingdom was being threatened. The religious leaders of that day, most of you know this, but they were the elite of the elite. They were the top 1%. They were the most influential people in the society. They had the best educational pedigree. They were not just the religious authorities, however, but they wielded massive political and legal influence. And so here comes Jesus, right? You gotta get this picture. Here you've got the elite of the elite, the Ivy League trained people, right? The influential people of culture. And here comes Jesus. He doesn't have any of that educational pedigree. He has no wealth to speak of. He's poor. In fact, they find themselves at time going, hey, wait a minute. Isn't this guy like Joseph and Mary, the carpenter's son? And they're like, what authority, like what basis, what authority does this person actually have? Where does his authority come from? Because they're looking around and they're seeing the people respond. They're seeing people flock to him and be amazed at who he is and what he has done. So when you see that, you can begin to see why now this was such a big threat to Jesus. And here's the thing, church family. When your kingdom is threatened, what do you do? When your kingdom is threatened, you do everything you can to get rid of the threat. And that's exactly what they did. That's exactly what these religious leaders did, literally. They put that threat to death. And so we begin to see how Jesus was a threat to their kingdoms. What I want us to see is that in reality, he's a threat to our kingdom too. You know, Jesus has not minced any words to us thus far in his teaching all the way up through Mark chapter 11. In fact, we read over and over again, he's saying, listen, if you want to follow me, you've got to die to yourself. If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. You have to follow me. You have to understand that you're no longer the king of your kingdom. I am the king of the kingdom. He is the king who has come. And this is what it looks like to follow him. And just like the religious leaders, when we understand that, that that is what Jesus is really requiring of us, to be the king, to be the one who to whom we say, command me, to be the one to whom we say, wherever, just like I asked Paul, is it true? Listen, I believe you've done everything necessary to save me and wherever you tell me to go and whatever you tell me to do, I will do it. That's what it means for Jesus to be king. And that's what Jesus is requiring of us. That's what he's saying. This is what it looks like to follow me. 
And when we understand that, we realize, well, that can be a threat to our kingdom too. We may not say it in exactly the same way or do it in an exact way as the religious leaders, but nevertheless, we do. So for just a few moments this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to share with you four ways or four forms our rejection can take, ways that it can look like. Because here's what I want to ask of every one of us this morning. I want to ask if we will just slow down for just a minute and ask ourselves, when it comes to my own relationship with God, when it comes to how I think about God's authority, am I rejecting him in any of these ways? All right? Four forms that our rejection can take. Maybe the most obvious way of rejection of Jesus's authority can take place is in the form of hostility. It's in the form of hostility towards him. Perhaps you know people or, or have read of those who are just hostile towards Jesus's claims of authority. You know, back in the early 2000s, there was a movement among atheists. It's called the New Atheists. And the four horsemen of the New Atheist movement were Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris. And when you read their works, you realize these men were very aggressive and continue to be very aggressive and hostile towards all of religion. In fact, several years ago, I read portions of Christopher Hitchens' book that's titled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Listen to his hostility when he says, violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive toward children. And he would say, organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. You see what he's saying? He's saying, this is what organized religion actually produces. Violent, irrational, intolerant, racist, tribal, bigots, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women and coercive of children. So it's this hostility towards God. Richard Dawkins also doesn't mince any words. He regularly articulates that believers just simply are unintelligent. In a book I was reading recently, it said this, one of the most jarring aspects of Dawkins' work is his open disgust of religious of religious believers, not just the leaders of religious organizations. He regularly states that believers are simply unintelligent. He explains that his books are written in part for those whose, quote, native intelligence is strong enough to overcome religious teaching. According to him, religious teaching is brainwashing, and only certain people are smart or lucky enough to snap out of religious belief. He would go on to say in no uncertain terms that religion is a damaging illusion equated to mental illness. So it's this overt hostility towards religion, towards the authority of God. I imagine most of us here aren't hostile to God. You probably wouldn't be here, right, if you were, if that was your posture towards God. But that is certainly a form of rejection that we see. But sometimes our rejection takes on a different form. And that form looks more like skepticism. A skepticism that in many instances lead people, and you see this happening more and more, and we read more and more about it, of people starting a process of deconstructing their faith. I started reading a book this week called Surprised by Doubt, How Disillusionment Can Invite Us Into a Deeper Faith. And in the book, the authors discuss the skepticism 
of a religion professor by the name of Bart Ehrman who teaches at a well-known university. And they tell a little bit about his background. And in his background, he grew up in a Christian home with a Christian upbringing, but he began doubting his beliefs in graduate school as he began questioning the veracity of the Bible, eventually seeing it as a very human book, in his words, filled with errors. But the authors went on to talk about how this wasn't the ultimate breaking point. For Ehrman, the real challenge to his faith came when he just could no longer explain how a good and loving and benevolent and powerful God could actually be involved with a world that was so incredibly broken. And so in his life, this questioning of the Bible's authenticity and veracity led to a question of the problem of evil. And that was a question he couldn't reconcile. And therefore, he abandoned his faith and moved towards a skeptical agnosticism. And we see that transpiring, right? We begin to question God's authority because we can't reconcile things that are difficult for us to understand. We see that sometimes when it comes to issues like the problem of evil. How do we actually think about this as Christians and what does the Bible actually teach about it? How do we think about the, the issues between science and faith and how these things can work together when they seem to be opposed to one another? Or how do we think about things like sexual ethics? When I feel, when I have a feeling of how I should express myself sexually or how I should express myself with a gender and how that conflicts with what the scripture teaches and what biblical norms and biblical ethics really are. And so these questions begin arising for us and those questions loom large and they loom so large that eventually, for those who have a faith background, begin to deconstruct their faith. And so their skepticism begins to take the form of an ultimate rejection of who God is. So sometimes it looks like hostility. Sometimes it looks like skepticism. But then there are other times, church family, where it just begins to look like indifference. It's not that we're hostile towards Christ. It's just at times we can be indifferent. People can be indifferent. It's not bad or it's not good. They're just indifferent. We see it in a pluralistic society. And so the argument goes something like this. All truth claims and sources of authority are equally valid and should be respected. There are different paths up to the top of the mountain and it doesn't really matter which path you take. So if following Jesus works for you, that's the path you wanna take, then great. But let me find my own way, the way that works for me, and I'll be the ultimate authority in my life. So sometimes it looks like indifference looks like pluralism. Other times it looks like open spirituality where each person basically ends up picking whatever aspects of religion help them connect with the sacred. So you certainly see more and more of that today. It's not that people are just outright rejecting everything about spirituality. They just kind of take all of spirituality and they put it on a giant smorgasbord and say, you know what? I like this aspect of what Jesus taught. I'm gonna embrace that, but I'm gonna reject this. I like this version of love and what I think that looks like. I'm gonna embrace that and I'm gonna reject that. So it's not like a submission to what the scripture teaches about spirituality or a deep faith. It's just basically saying, I'm gonna be the authority and I'm gonna pick and choose from various religions or various spiritual movements and I'm gonna make it my own. And I will determine that for myself. And so rejection takes the form of indifference, either in pluralism or in this idea of just kind of open spirituality. But then there's one final way that I think we reject Jesus's authority, and it's actually the the way I think perhaps most of us 
might struggle with the most. And I find the hardest in our lives to see. You see, sometimes our rejection looks like selective submission. You say, well, what do you mean by that? If many, I believe here today, if many of us were asked whether or not we would agree with Jesus's claims to ultimate authority in our lives, we're gonna quickly say, yes, of course we do. Absolutely, I've surrendered my life to Christ. But then there are moments in our lives, in those tension points, when there's a battle taking place between our flesh and our spirit, when push comes to shove, deep down, we functionally say to ourselves that we retain the right the right to determine for ourselves what we want and what we don't want, to say no to the specifics. There are biblical ethics and norms that when in conflict with our wants and desires at any given moment, we're just not that willing to submit to. And it's all sorts of things, right? It's all sorts of things. We say to God, well, God, you can have this, but you can't touch that. You can have me, but you can't have my money. I need my money to feel like I've got some control. I need my money to feel like I can pursue the vision of the good life that I think is out there for me and my family. God, you can have me, but you can't have my time. I've got a vision for the life that I want and anything that competes with that life, serving, giving of myself, volunteering, any of those things, that's kind of off limits to you. God, you can have me, but you can't have my kids. I have a vision for my children and what I want them to be and who I want them to be, a vision of success for them. And so I'm gonna do whatever it takes to let them pursue that vision of success, whether it's in sports or academics or in some other extracurricular thing, even if it means I sacrifice their engagement and their involvement in the life of the church, I have. You can have everything, but you can't really have my kids because I know ultimately what's best for them. You can have me, but you can't have my sexual ethics. You can't have what I feel. You can't have my pursuit of sexual intimacy. You can't have my vision of what gender ought to be. You can't have that. You can't have my understanding of what it means to be in a relationship or to to live with with someone before marriage and cohabitation. You can have me, but you can't have that. And can I push balls here and say something? Kids, students, listen to me. This applies to you. You see, God has put your parents as authorities in your life to teach you ultimately what it means to trust God. And when you say to your parents, I'm just gonna willfully disobey you, you're saying ultimately, I'm just gonna willfully disobey God. And it's a way of saying, well, God, I kind of trust you and like you, but I'm not really willing to give myself to you. So it applies to all of us, regardless of age and regardless of where we are in our lives. I want us to see and wrestle with this. Partial obedience is still disobedience. So selective submission, church family, is still rejection. It's a rejection of God's authority in our lives. You know, I said this to the earlier service, and here's, I didn't write this down, but I think it's true. You know, the reality of it is, When I think about my own life and when I think about us, I realize, well, my rejection of Jesus's authority in my life can be multiple ones of those things and not just any of them or not just one of them. Sometimes it might be that I'm just indifferent. 
Sometimes it might be that there really is a deep theological and philosophical question that I'm wrestling with that's causing me to be skeptical in the moment or to have a certain measure of doubt that I need to wrestle with. Or there might be things that I just know in my life that I may not talk about in public places that I just don't want God to have control over. And so I'm just going to choose not to submit that part of my life to him. So the question for us in wrestling with this is, are there aspects of my life that I'm just willing and ultimately rejecting God either through hostility or through skepticism or through indifference or through selective submission? Because all forms can be there in our lives. So as we think about it and our conflict with his authority, it's not just enough that we explore how we reject his authority. We have to push further and ask why. Think with me about why we reject his authority. Because in many instances, this isn't the only reason, and I want to be clear about this, not the only reason, but it is a primary reason that we reject his authority. It all, in many ways, comes down to trust. We feel like we can't trust God to do as well for us as we could do for ourselves, and so we reject his authority in favor of our own. But I want to ask you something, all right? A serious question. I want to ask us, how do we feel like that's going? How do we feel like that's going for us as individuals, as families, as a culture? I mean, when I stop and I look at things and I put just a, an evaluatory lens of, on my life and I start thinking about it, when I stop and think about things, there is, man, I see the rise of anxiety and depression, an epidemic of loneliness and emptiness. I see the rise of addictions to pornography, addictions to substances. I see the abuses of people and the abuses of power. I read about the exploitation of children and the exploitation for the good of others. Think about the news. Just this week, we saw another tragic school shooting, senselessly taking the life of a sixth grade precious student. I read stories of of human trafficking for the sexual exploits of the the wealthy elite. So you think about this and I go, man, like this is what it looks like. When we live as the ultimate authority, things just digress into chaos, which is what the scripture is teaching us, right? And it leaves us asking the question, well, What if there was a better way? What if there was a better way? What if there was a better story than the one our culture tells us, the story that makes us the ultimate authority? What if, listen to me, what if we could give up our claim to authority and at the same time have the confidence that we'll be okay in the end? Which leads me just to the last point I want to make, which is our response to his authority. And I, I didn't plan well. Someone, someone said, well, are you excited to be back in the, in the pulpit this week? Because I didn't preach last week. I was like, yeah, but I'm afraid it might be an hour and a half, right? So I'm not going to be able to get to chapter 12 the way I'd hope to. But here's what I want to do. When we come to chapter 12, let me just tell you, Jesus is telling us a story. In most parables, they conceal a truth from those who have hard hearts and don't have ears to hear. That's the way most parables work, not this one. This parable is different. This parable does the opposite. It reveals the truth to the religious leaders and provokes the religious leaders when they see the threat to their lives and their kingdom to take action. And so Jesus tells a story that would have ultimately reminded them of a passage of scripture found in Isaiah chapter five, where Isaiah talks about a vineyard that represents Israel and Judah, 
that God would ultimately bring judgment for, for their lack of spiritual fruit, for their unwillingness to trust, trust God as the ultimate authority. So God allows the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivity to come in. And we see the impact on Israel. Well, Jesus takes this imagery that these religious leaders would have been very, very familiar with, and he takes that imagery and he modifies it. And as one scholar said, he portrays now Israel's leaders as wicked tenant farmers over the vineyard who refused to give God his share of the produce, first rejecting and abusing his messengers. We see what happened to John the Baptist. We see what happened to all the prophets of old. We see how all of these were sent, how many of them were beaten, how many of them were abused. Some were killed as a result of them coming and warning and reminding the people of Israel of who God is. And eventually, God would send his son, Jesus. And so this story, without unpacking it in great detail, highlights a couple of really important things for us that I don't want us to miss. First, Jesus tells us the story to highlight the fact that the religious leaders aren't really doing anything new in their rejection of God and his authority. And what the nation of Israel did in the Old Testament when they were disobedient and God allowed the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity to take place, it's no different than what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they were faced with the same decision. Will I trust God's authority or will I trust my own? And so what I want us to see is this question of authority really transcends culture and it transcends generations. But this story also reminds us, certainly reminds us of who Jesus is and what he came to do because church family, he's the son sent to the far land by the father. He's the son who would be killed at the hands of men who saw him not as a savior, but as a threat to their lives and to their kingdom. Listen, here's the thing. We reject God's authority because deep down, we feel like we can't trust it. But do you remember what Jesus says before he ascends into heaven? He says, who has all authority? All authority has been given to who? To him. It's been given to him. He has all authority. And what does he do with all the authority that he has over kings and kingdoms? Does he use his authority to do what's best for himself at our expense? And the answer to that is no. Jesus does what's best for us at his own expense. Listen to Jesus' own words in John 10, verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And hear what he says. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Listen, friends, this is the type of authority we can trust. We can trust Jesus with everything because he held nothing back. Jesus came knowing that he would be rejected and killed, and yet he still came into the world. He still rode into Jerusalem. He came knowing that he would be despised and rejected. He came knowing that he would go to a cross, that he would take the scorn, the ridicule, the betrayal. He suffered the pains of a horrific Roman crucifixion. Oh, I pray that we would see this morning that Jesus is not an unruly taskmaster who's demanding He's a loving God who wants the absolute best for his children, so much so that he sent his son into the far land and died for us. You know, so I was thinking about just authority and I was thinking about it even in my own life, the, the things that make it challenging for me to, to submit to God's authority in my own life. You know, you realize at times that our own experiences with authority lead us to distrust. 
Like we have parents who disappoint us. I want to be, I got awesome parents. <laughs> so mom and dad, if you're listening, you're awesome parents, right? But I know that's not the case in some instances. You have parents who disappoint you. You have leaders both inside and outside the church who use their authority not for the good of others, but for the good of themselves, for their own selfish, selfish game. And so our experiences make us skeptical. So we conclude based upon our experience and based upon the fact that our hearts want what our hearts want. You put those things together and we determine that the best way forward is to be our own authority. But I wanna remind you that that's never the case with Jesus. His authority is always used for our good. And we can trust that because the one with authority laid down his life that we might find life and have it to the full. So it leaves us asking a question this morning. In an honest assessment of your life, how are you responding to Jesus's authority? And how are you responding to that? Are you hostile towards it? Skeptical because of the questions that you've got mulling around in your mind? Are you indifferent towards it? Do you look at it and you say, I'm just going to pick and choose selectively. I'll give you this part of my life, but God, I'm not willing to give you that. And you stop and you evaluate that. Do you just be willing just to think about what Christ has done for you? And confess that to the Lord. Lord, I see where I'm being hostile or indifferent or skeptical. But when I look to Jesus, it brings little more clarity to all of these things, to the place where I know if you would die for me and use your authority for my good, then I can trust you. And if I can trust you, man, that changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. How are you responding to Jesus's authority in your life? And then there's a second question. What's keeping you from trusting Jesus? I want you to meditate on this. With all authority and the ability to do whatever he wanted, Jesus does what's best for us at great cost to himself. So what's keeping you from trusting Jesus? Can I ask it this way? What part of your kingdom do you see as a threat, a Jesus being a threat to, that you're just unwilling to say, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. And he's come that we would have life and have it to the full. He's the one who laid down his authority for us. Oh, may we submit to that. Amen. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one wants alone. If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.